This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to the library. I want to thank you for coming out this morning uh, to our first graphic novel symposium. So we're trying to have some fun, do something a little different uh, in the library and uh, with uh, highlighting uh, this art form that we're going to learn about today uh, with Eric. Before I do that, I want to thank a few people, the kind of things you have to do with these events, so bear with me. First, we want to thank um, all of our comic shops that are set up out in the hallway, so go out there, buy money, uh, no, spend money, buy stuff, <laughs> and uh, uh, Eric will help us understand the art form and want to engage with it. I want to thank um, Espresso Love, our coffee bar. They've given us some support to make this happen, so go buy coffee also. And thank uh, Moraine Valley's marketing department that helped get all of our stuff uh, together to spread the word about this. Reminders, this afternoon at 3 o'clock there is a cosplay event. So you can go over in the U building and see people dressed up as their favorite characters and stuff. So that should be entertaining. Um, if you're participating, there's a sign-up table. It should be there at noon outside the library. So sign up. At 12.30 today, Cheryl Bundy, a literature professor, will be talking about graphic novels as literature. So right after this. Stick around, should be good. And tomorrow at 11 a.m., Jason King, a faculty member in math and in geography, will be talking about gaming and um, gaming and learning. So it'll be cool. Following his lecture, we are going to play some games in the coffee bar. Um, it's free. Come and hang out, play games. It'll be fun. I want to remind everyone that the library has a growing and awesome graphic novel collection. So if you don't want to spend money, you want to just check out stuff for free, um, come and see us. And also, uh, our superhero, Brenda, who's the cutout over there dressed up, um, if you take a selfie with her, you win fabulous, amazing prices, including gift cards to comic shops, Moraine Valley stuff, and other things. Um, so do that. Take a, take a photo, um, tweet it with the hashtag Comic Culture, and you can win. With that, let me introduce Eric Lagatuda. Um, I've known Eric since I started here. We started together as faculty members, so I'm excited that he can come and talk. Eric uh, is a graduate of the Art Institute of Chicago, correct? Uh, is, uh, teaches um, in the fine arts department, drawing, painting, and is also um, a graphic novel comic book artist. And I'm excited to hear his thoughts and, um, and exploration of what it means to work in this genre. So with that, here's Eric. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Troy. Thank you guys uh, so much for coming out. It's really fun to be able to talk to a general audience about this kind of stuff that I've kind of fallen in love with. Uh, as Troy mentioned, um, my training, my background is mostly in painting, oil painting specifically. Uh, I did that in graduate school and, and for years afterwards. Um, and sort of uh, in an interesting process, uh, I got more and more interested in uh, uh, visual narrative and ultimately comic books um, and actually my students were a big part of that um, at, uh, 10 years ago or so. Um, so I've gone through a big process in the last decade or so sort of teaching myself how to make these things and how artists think about um, uh, creating these kinds of visual narratives. So I'm going to share some of that with you guys. My drawing two people who are here take notes because we're going to do this in a couple of months. Uh, Anyway, um, so, uh, so I'm going to talk about just some of the basic uh, theoretical and practical things that artists think about when they're trying to tell a story with, uh, with still pictures and words. Um, I'm going to talk about a bunch of different artists, uh, 
most of whom are, are well-known and accomplished in their fields in all sorts of different kinds of genres, um, from you know, superhero comics with uh, Jack Kirby over here, and then Chris Ware, a well-known independent uh, important comic book artist. Um, these are just people that I particularly like, so you know, take that for what it is. There's a many, many, many more artists out there uh, to, to find and enjoy. Okay, so I want to talk, start with just a couple of definitions here and just thinking about what comic books are. Um, when, when you just start talking about comic books with people, you know, people have a lot of assumptions about what they are, and we, we all know what comics are. The comics are this, right? Comics are people in spandex tights fighting bad guys in spandex tights with some superpowers, and that's comic books, right? And obviously, probably many of you in the audience know that that's not necessarily true, that superheroes are not comic books. Superheroes are a genre, right? We have superhero movies, and we also have detective movies, and we have dramatic movies, right? We would never assume when somebody says, I'm going to go watch a movie, that they're going to go watch a superhero movie, although that may be changing these days. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but when we say comics, people assume you're talking about superhero comics. Um, and, you know, when you walk into a comic book store, there's a good reason for that, because most of the comic book stores you see, and probably the 90% of what you see out there that they're selling, are superhero comics. And that's a strange thing. The market for comic books in America is very odd. It is dominated by superheroes, by Marvel and DC Comics especially, but also Image these days to a certain extent. Um, I think the only thing making an inroad on that would be The Walking Dead. It sells as much as the superhero comics these days, so zombies too. Um, but there's a curious thing. So what we, people tend to conflate the uh, medium of comics for the genre of superheroes, and it's simply not the case, right? Comics can make, uh, you can do many, many different kinds of stories with comic books, and people decades ago understood this. The American comic book uh, industry wasn't dominated by superheroes. There were all kinds of genres. Comic books are claimed to be an original American medium, that, that the idea of taking comic strips and then bundling them into a book and reading longer stories is, is claimed by America as a medium. And when uh, it started as a mass medium in the 30s, uh, it grew into all kinds of genres. We don't realize this now, but the sales of comic books back then in the 30s were massive compared to today. Millions and millions of comic books were sold every month in these titles. And you had romance comics, you had adventure comics, you had westerns, you had... Millie the model for some reason. Um, you had superheroes, all of these kinds of things. And then sometime in the early 50s, um, boom, extinction event. Almost all the titles disappeared and people stopped reading comics. All of a sudden, weird. Why in the world would that happen? It was a mass medium. Comic books today are not a mass medium, right? Film is, right? Television is. Comics are not. But it was at, at the time. Um, Something happened. What in the world could have happened? This guy happened. I'm only going to talk about it briefly because I can you know, go into this forever. But you should all read this book by David Hajdu called The Tencent Play. The library has this book. Yes? Um, it's an awesome book. Um, and the most depressing thing in that book is in the back, there's about a 20-page long appendix in fine print of every artist that stopped working in comics after Frederick Wortham here published his famous book, The Seduction of the Innocent, in which this psychologist claimed that basically comic books were destroying American culture and turning children into juvenile delinquents and criminals and be making them become violent. 
Everyone at this time was worried. Kids were acting up. Society wasn't what it was, and Frederick Wortham blamed it all on comic books. He's a German immigrant psychologist. He's famously quoted for saying something along the lines of, Hitler had nothing on these comic book publishers. I believe that's the quote on the back of the book. <laughs> what did he base this on? Well, here's all these kids that committed crimes, and look, they all read comic books. Ignoring the fact that 90% of the American public, or 99%, read comic books. Right? It's all anecdotal. There is absolutely no evidence that any of this was true. These are the same kind of things you hear today about video games, right? They're destroying culture, turning people violent. Anyway, um, it decimated the comic book industry. And as I said, um, I could go on and on about it, but um, basically thousands of artists stopped working in the comic book industry. They stopped publishing most of these titles. And what you had left were the, the titles that were approved by what they called the Comics Code Authority, and that they were considered kid-friendly, and they met the standards of not showing crime, not showing certain kinds of violence. Or e They basically completely sanitized all of it, and we were left with a few superhero titles, right? Okay. Um, anyway, kind of shifting gears a little bit here. Um, in spite of the fact that all of those artists stopped working in the industry, some still did. Um, and fortunately, we still have a comic book industry, and we still have some amazing artists that create these things. And I want to point out here at the beginning that when we say comic book creators, comic book artists, we're sometimes talking about actually two different artists, or at least two different kinds of artists, right? We have the writers and we have the visual artists, on the other hand. Sometimes they're the same person. Sometimes they're not. The mainstream superhero comics are usually created by a team of artists which are led by the writer, Neil Gaiman here, famous for the Sandman series of uh, horror comic books, um, and Colleen Duran, one of the artists who worked with him over the course of the years on that comic and other things. Um, so collaborating together, one person is writing the words and the script, one person is drawing the pictures and creating the visual narrative uh, around that script. So together, uh, the writer and the artist make th that comic book. Um, there are also letterers and colorists and other artists, too. I don't want to shortchange them, for, but for now, we're going to talk about the mainly those two. And there are some famous teams of writers and artists in uh, comic book history and the mainstream superhero stuff. You probably all know Stan Lee. This is him much younger on the right-hand side there. Um, and uh, Jack Kirby on the left, uh, the king of comics, uh, amazing comic book artist. Um, the two of them are responsible for most of those really popular uh, Marvel superheroes that uh, originated in the 1960s, so the Hulk here. Um, and the kinds of dialogue and art that you see in, this, in those Marvel comics are sort of the epitome of what I think people think of when they think of comics and superhero comics. You know, really dramatic, dynamic action sequences with uh, dynamic poses. That's Kirby's real signature. And then in, on the writing side, very wordy big word balloons and big narrative captions stuffed with expository dialogue that's kind of clunky. And uh, I know when I was reading comic books as a kid, this is what comic books were, and there's a lot, you know, those old comics, and you read them, and you, you kind of cringe at it, right? There's a strange thing that, that these guys were doing that is not done anymore today at all. I want to point out briefly is that you think probably, okay, you've got a writer and an artist, and the writer sort of says, here's the story, here's the words, and then gives it to the artist, and then they draw it. And that's indeed exactly what happens these days. But these guys didn't do it that way. What they did was they'd have a meeting, and Stan Lee would say, uh, I kind of have some ideas, and Jack Kirby would say, I kind of have an idea, let's do a story where this happens. And they go, okay. And then Jack Kirby would draw it. He would create the entire narrative with no words whatsoever. 
He'd draw all the pictures and tell the story visually with zero words. And they would hand it to uh, Stan Lee, and Stan Lee would write a whole bunch of captions around it after the fact, and then he would, you know, send that off and to get printed and whatnot. So you get all kinds of weird, stunted dialogue. You saved my life. I figured it was the least I could do for you. You know, it's a funny thing. I'm an orphan, and no one ever did anything for me before except you, a stranger. Who talks like that? Um, Stan Lee, obviously. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of clunky and weird. Nonetheless, I don't mean to discount their creations because it's amazing stuff, but you've got to get over that weird style. Modern comics, and even in the superhero realm, I've really become a lot more sophisticated in terms of the relationships of words and pictures here. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, Brian, Michael Bendis, and Mark Bagley from the uh, early 2000s. Um, there's some, uh, it, the, the kinds of dialogue is, are much more naturalistic. The relationship of the words and the pictures is much more sophisticated. There's a lot more room for the pictures to say, tell the, their own story uh, and the words to tell their own story and for the two things to come together. So you'll see much bigger panels sometimes, much more spare, you know, a lot more wordless panels. Stan Lee could have never had a panel like that and not filled it with a giant glob of, of uh, expository uh, captions. Okay, so um, some of those comic books, especially the mainstream superhero ones, are created by a team with a writer and an artist leading it, uh, but some are not. Some, like Paul Pope here, uh, one of my favorite independent comic book artists, he also does some of the superhero stuff too. He does the whole thing himself. He is the writer, he is the uh, draftsman, uh, he does the layouts, you know, he does the lettering, uh, often, not always. Um, sometimes he'll even do the design of the book. Um, so he's really an, an auteur in terms of that. Um, I love his style. If you've never heard of Paul Pope or seen his work, you should check it out. I bet there's some out there in the bins. Uh, incredible uh, brushwork, really expressive line. He was one of the first Americans, uh, actually, who got a job working professionally in the manga industry in Japan. So he learned how to draw really fast, really quickly. Um, okay. Um, so skipping kind of back, another one of these auteurs uh, back uh, in the 1940s into the 50s and, and beyond uh, was Will Eisner here. Uh, he is probably, I don't know, the godfather of comic books in America. Um, one of the most uh, talented, skilled, and influential artists that ever worked in the medium. Um, starting out when he was a young man, he was most famous for the spirit, which was kind of a superhero type character, kind of a private eye, a little bit of a supernatural thing. If you've ever come across the movie by Frank Miller on the spirit, don't ever go anywhere near it. I, I never watched it. Anybody here watch it? I heard it was terrible. You agree? Extremely campy. Extremely campy. Batman like <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I heard it was really bad. So, uh, but the comic is quite interesting and amazing. It is a product of its time. There's a lot of stuff today that we would consider grotesquely racist and sexist in there because it's from the 1940s, but nonetheless, very influential. But Will Eisner didn't just make the spirit. He's also um, credited with inventing the graphic novel. He at least popularized the term, uh, and sometimes his book, the, A Contract with God from 1978, is often called the first graphic novel. Um, and what he meant by that term of graphic novel was, I mean this to be considered equal in literary value to another novel you might read. It doesn't have to be about superheroes. In this case, it's a semi-autobiographical story about Jewish immigrants in New York. Um, and you know, I won't go into great depth on it, but, um, but it's, it's a really amazing book. And it demonstrates all of the kinds of advanced storytelling techniques that he was uh, playing around with and, and developing at the time. So he invented that term or popularized that term graphic novel. 
Um, he also coined this term sequential art as an alternative to the word comics. Comics is a strange term to use for this medium because, you know, comic means funny, right? You know, like comic actors or, you know, stand-up comics. Where, why do we use the word comics? Because, uh, you know, the, those kinds of funny comics were the thing that dominated that when they first bound cartoons together into a book, they were dominated by those comic funnies, and so they called them comic books, and that just became the name for the genre. Okay. So, Will Eisner, we'll talk more about him in a minute, and he was the one that was attempting to elevate uh, the medium above people's preconceptions about what comics were and what they could do. So he uh, developed these terms. He was also a teacher, uh, wrote books on how comics were made, taught classes. Um, he was very influential to just about everybody, but also in particular to this guy, Scott McCloud, um, uh, was a young man in 1993 when he wrote this book, uh, which is called Understanding Comics, The Invisible Art. And it is a big, long comic book. I'm sure you have this in the library, probably multiple copies of it. Um, and it's amazing. I read this book long before I was interested in making comics. And just about every visual artist I know gets handed this book at some point or another because it really is an amazing book. Um, and he, in it, in it, he basically you know, created the seminal theoretical foundation for how people understand and make comics today um, you know, by studying people like Will Eisner, by just reading tons and tons of comic books. And he also made adventure comics himself. Uh, he, he wrote this book. Uh, much of the theoretical stuff I'm going to go into in a minute is completely derived from him. I'm all credit to, to him. I've got some of his images in here. He's the guy that kind of outlines some of this stuff. Um, okay. So basic definitions, what are, what is comics? And that's a strange thing, right? Comics sounds plural, but we say comics is a medium, um, a plural noun with a uh, singular verb. Um, uh, comics are, in that sense, would refer to comic books, but comics is a medium. It's a strange, strange thing. He says, <clears throat> uh, juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence intended to convey information and or produce an aesthetic response in the viewer, period. Oh, my God. Um, <clears throat> very wordy. Complete. Very, very complete. Um, hard, a little bit tricky to understand. There's a lot of information packed into that tiny little sentence. So I paraphrase it for you. This is the way I say it. Telling stories with static pictures read in sequence. Right? So we see here, uh, again from Scott McCloud's book, five little silhouettes of a man in a row, Right? Um, they are not a continuous sense of motion, right? We're not seeing a film of somebody walking and then bending over and then standing up. And yet, you read that from left to right, if you do, and you fill in the gaps, right? You make the movie in your head. Everything that you don't see that's happening, as we say, in the gutter here, right? Get your mind out of the gutter. Um, everything in there is being created inside your mind. You are filling in the gaps and telling yourself the story. And this makes comic books unique in many ways um, because everybody will tell that story to themselves a little differently. And every artist will choose what to show and what to leave out a little bit differently. Uh, and this has profound implications for how we read these stories. Um, this process of filling in the gaps, of seeing something that's incomplete but, but reading it as whole, Scott McCloud calls this closure, right? Uh, the process of telling yourself the story uh, that's happening in the gutter between those moments. Right? And so 
In talking about this process of closure, he identifies six different kinds of transitions from one panel, gutter, to another panel, right? Ways in which we juxtapose two static images next to each other, but yet read it as a continuous narrative story, right? So starting at the start here, real basic stuff. Now, not all artists agree with all of these. Some people have created variations on this, but this is kind of the basic foundational thing. And he came up with this not just because he was making it up, but by studying and looking at comics from all over the world. And he sort of uh, articulated that this is how we were reading them. This is how it was working. So the first kind of transition is our moment-to-moment -moment transition. Um, and I always describe this to my students in terms of sentence structure, nouns and verbs. Uh, in panel number one, Batman crawls. In panel number two, Batman crawls a moment later. In panel number three, Batman's still crawling a moment later, right? Same noun, same verb. The only thing that's changed is usually a rather brief moment of time. It doesn't always have to be brief, but it can be, right? You can see that also here, getting closer to the planet, the spider crawling upward, right? These are all Scott McCloud's examples. The next one, the action-to-action -action sequence. Now, it's important to distinguish here that, yes, indeed, we have one moment followed by another moment, but the important thing is that the verb has changed, right? Same noun, Superman holds the guy, then Superman throws the guy, right? A moment later, yes. But because we have a new verb, we call it an action-to-action -action sequence. American comics, especially superhero comics, tend to be dominated by these kinds of transitions. Probably a little mess, less so these days than in the past. Next, we have the subject-subject transition. We still have moments passing. We have different actions in each of the panels. But, importantly, we have a new noun. Herb is talking, and then Blondie's talking, and then Dagwood is sleeping. So in each panel, we see a different noun. And also, there's a different verb for that, that noun as well. So the subject-to-subject -subject transition. Uh, next, we have scene-to-scene. -scene. Uh, and indeed, we have different subjects, obviously, in each scene. But the important thing here is that we have a large gap in either time and or space. Right? So uh, Metropolis, cut to Philadelphia, cut to Gotham City. Right? little uh, Darwin Cook page here. Um, and so we have a big gap in time and space. We call that scene-to-scene. -scene, right? Um, sometimes it's hard to know when you're switching scenes, but oftentimes the little narrative caption will tell you that. Without the words there, you wouldn't really know which city you were in, for example. All right. Um, and then the weirdest one, I think, the hardest to kind of get a grasp is this aspect-to-aspect -aspect kind of transition. Here, a little snippet from a Chris Ware comic. Um, in this one, uh, yes, it is subject-to-subject, -subject, and sometimes there's even action-to-action -action going on in them. But the function of these panels is to basically set a scene, right? To establish a setting and sometimes a mood, right? So even though we're using elements of the other transitions, the way that we're, they're working together isn't so much to advance a specific narrative sequence, but rather to just kind of set a scene. Um, so Scott McCloud calls this the roving eye. So here we're setting the scene of a walk on a rainy day. We see water falling off leaves. We see a distant shot of the scale walking in the rain. We see a close-up of her feet on the pavement, etc. Right. Um, you can also use aspect to aspect in a conceptual way. You know, we have the uh, pine tree and Santa Claus. These would be aspects of the abstract idea of Christmas, for example, if you can see that. And finally, there is the non sequitur, which is a weird thing to talk about when we're talking about sequential art, because it basically means does not come in sequence, <laughs> non sequitur. Um, in, in this case, uh, 
there is no obvious or there is no at all um, narrative relationship between uh, when we go from one panel to the next. Um, we have a baby in a bassinet, the mom looking in. We have a big city from years ago. We have the Earth from orbit, and then we have the close-up of a hydrogen atom. This is a uh, anybody know what this is from quiz? Um, the uh, prequel to Watchmen. Anybody seen Watchmen? Um, anyway, so there's no narrative relationship here. We're not meant to think that we're traveling between these things literally, or that there's some you know, some relationship sequentially or narratively, but the relationship here is metaphorical, right? You see the obvious formal relationship, that arcing shape that unifies all the panels. They're all the same size. They all have that same arc to them. And each one of those panels is basically a metaphor for the next one in the sequence. And they do allude to things that are going to happen in this story later on. But the artist is using it to just set up a bunch of metaphors for you to consider. They're not meant to be linked in a specific sequence. So it's tricky to use a non sequitur in a story and have it still be a non sequitur because we want to make stories out of these things. We want to make specific sequential narrative meanings out of them. Okay, so in all of this uh, definition uh, and explication that I've been giving you so far, I haven't said a word about, picture, about words, right? I've been talking about pictures, right? So in my, my own paraphrase of the definition here, not McLeod's, but mine, I didn't say anything about words. Telling stories with static pictures read in sequence, using those six kinds of closure, as McLeod said. What about the words? Um, the relationship of words and pictures in a comic book is obviously quite complex, and it's really what makes the comic book medium unique, right? Um, and the important thing to realize uh, that, that I realized, especially as I started to make the things, is that you can't think of them as separate things, that really words are pictures, they are. They're just one kind of a picture. So I didn't even bother putting it in my definition because words are just a different kind of picture. They are drawings of sounds, right? And you can design those drawings in many, many different ways. Here, all of these sound effects, right? There is the sound you hear in your head when you read those letters, and then there's also the graphic design that the letterer has used to design that word. And those two things are working together to create a replication of a sound in your head, right? You don't actually hear it, but you read it and you see it and you turn that visual cue into an imaginary sound in your mind. So words are pictures. They're pictures of sounds and how we design them has a huge impact on uh, how the story works. Um, as you might expect, Will Eisner was uh, a pioneer in terms of uh, uh, lettering design and um, title design and page layout and words in graphic novels as well. Um, he was well known in the spirit for these splash pages um, where uh, uh, he, that would usually be like one single panel that filled an entire page that would happen at the beginning of the story. And, you know, he, he was like uh, an actor trying to one-up himself with every single issue of the comic book, some new creative way to have the title, the spirit, uh, come into the page. Um, this is, would be an awesome 2D design <laughs> uh, thing to look at. Look at Will Eisner. Here you can see... Um, the large stone S, and then the 3D letters coming across, and then some panels filling in under below it. Um, here, the uh, designed title up above. The spirit is in these uh, letters that look like newspapers kind of blowing across the scene. Um, some beautiful stuff there. Um, and, of course, his, even his signature is designed there. Here's a couple of other pages from the spirit. Uh, uh, Will Eisner on the left there, a cover in this case uh, with some color thrown in. And then uh, the image on the right is by uh, an artist named Darwin Cook um, 
who did a more modern uh, uh, iteration of the spirit and didn't copy Will Eisner, but he always wanted to do the same thing. He always had these really amazingly designed splash pages at the beginning of the story here. So in this case, you can actually see uh, some of the little uh, foreshadowing actions um, happening as we see the spirit coming across the page. Uh, there's actually you know, action happening inside each of these panels. Uh, and then the design of the, t the title of the story here, Time Bomb, kind of brought into it. All righty. Um, even when we don't have these elaborately designed uh, titles and letters, even the, uh, the mundane uh, voice balloons and narrative captions have a really important visual function on the page. Um, they basically function as implied lines that draw your eye through the composition of the page. Um, so here uh, in this page from uh, Promethea, um, uh, written by Alan Moore, I think it's J.H. Williams III who's the, the visual artist, and I can't tell you the letter because I'm lame. Um, you can see how complex uh, the word balloons are, right? Uh, coming from, since it's an American comic, we read from left to right, top to bottom. But the way that the uh, word balloons have been arranged basically tell us how to move our eye through that page, right? In this case, there is some variation in, in when you might read the song lyrics here, which are creatively designed coming across because they don't necessarily follow in sequence with this, but I've tried with those yellow letters to kind of indicate how you do it. And if the writer and the artist and the letterer, if in this case, have done their job well, you never have to think about what to read next. You will just naturally read that and your eye will flow through the page. That's really hard, incidentally. If you've never tried to do this, it's really hard to do that and make it work and make it not be confusing. Um, uh, some modern comics, uh, they've moved very far away from what I talked about with uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby in terms of those kinds of stilted bits of dialogue, very unnaturalistic dialogue and clunky narrative captions. And even modern superhero comics like Ultimate Spider-Man here, um, the writers are, are much more influenced by uh, movie scripts and even uh, dramatic scripts, plays, in terms of how they construct their dialogue. I think Brian Michael Bendis here cites David Mamet as one of his main influences. If you didn't think that Ultimate Spider-Man had anything to do with David Mamet's plays, you're wrong. You should read them. Uh, and so here's a strange thing that happens when you have naturalistic dialogue in the middle of a comic book splash page, right? Okay. All right, so some of the nitty-gritty, uh, what about putting it all together? Aristotle said um, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, um, and that is indeed true of the comic book and the comic book page. So I'm going to talk about layout and design coming in here just a little bit. Um, probably the most classic structure of a page in comic books dating back to the earliest form would be your basic grid. In this case, a nine-panel grid you see on the left, and then a little bit of a variation on, on the right. These are a couple of pages from Watchmen uh, by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. And Alan Moore, when he wrote the book, really stipulated very specifically, we're going to base this entire book on this nine-panel grid, and it's part of the content of it. If you know the story of Watchmen, it's sort of the first superhero story that deconstructed superheroes and told a very adult story that kind of meant to explore what are the weird psychological things that are inherent in superhero stories. So it's kind of a meta sort of a story. And so uh, Alan Moore wanted the structure of it, the layout of the pages, to reference those early 
um, kinds of comic books. So he stipulated that nine-panel grid. Um, it creates a really tight, fast-paced narrative, as you can see on this particular page here. And sometimes when he wants to emphasize something a little bit more, give it a little bit more importance, he wants you to spend a little more time dwelling on that image, right, pausing on it, then they make it bigger, right? It's kind of crude, but oftentimes this is the case. If you want somebody to consider something more important and spend more time looking at it, make it bigger on the page. It's real simple. 2D design. There you go. Um, okay, so uh, Charles Burns here, some pages from Black Hole. Charles Burns, another one of these amazing auteurs. Um, you know, when I, was, when I was in grad, I went to the School of the Art Institute, and I had no artists there of any interest that were visiting artists, and my wife went to uh, University of Pennsylvania, and she had Charles Burns, and I was so jealous. Oh, anyway, um, okay, so uh, here you can see a very basic a variation on that same grid. Here it would be a six-panel grid with the two joined at the bottom. Um, you can see some of the amazing style and design and, and brushwork of Charles Burns here. Note that he's uh, uh, he's obviously telling a story that has a horror element. You can tell that by the kinds of characters you see, but also you can tell that there's even without reading it there's something not quite right happening on this page because the, the gutters have been made into that wavy design. And when things get even worse, when things get even crazier, not only do we have that wavy line, but the basic structure of the gutters themselves is becoming these big waves that come across the page and everything is fracturing as if uh, the, the flowing river has kind of come and sort of swept the panels away, right? So the structure of those panels themselves, even while you're maintaining traditional panels and grids, uh, can have a huge impact on the content uh, of the story and how you read it. Here's another variation on the grid by Craig Thompson. Uh, this book is called Goodbye Chunky Rice. It's a really cute uh, story. Um, and uh, here you can see that you know we've got even grids kind of around the perimeter and then the big sort of almost splash page in the middle. And even though there's little sub-narrative sequences happening that can kind of be read on their own around the perimeter, the whole thing sort of functions as a big aspect-to-aspect -aspect page where we're um, setting a scene, right? And then, you know, the story, story sort of starts again down here at the bottom, got us a wagon, and then they take off in their wagon. You know, so again, you, can, you read this guy's story from top to bottom, these guys across the top, these guys down here, and then the story sort of starts again down there. This is the kind of thing that happens in print comics where we're looking at simultaneous pages like this. And I should say that I'm not going to talk at all about digital comics and the completely unique and crazy and interesting and wonderful things that you can do when you've got uh, you know, a screen in front of you and how the images can go in sequence. It opens up a much more huge world of possibilities. I'm mostly talking about or entirely talking about print comics here. Uh, but that limitation, right, that you're looking at you know, static pages one after the other creates uh, some interesting formal possibilities. So again, uh, starting to now move away from a grid into uh, more unusually shaped panels here in, on this book uh, by Craig Thompson called Habibi, a story of a you know, vaguely fictional Middle Eastern country and some heroes. Um, you can see that the panel design has taken on some of the influence of um, Islamic art in here. Um, we still flow through top to bottom, right to left, and come, coming in this way. Uh, but again, the, the shape of the panel itself is uh, influencing the content that we're looking at. Another interesting thing in this particular page you can see is that we have a continuous background, 
but we have an action-to-action uh, -action sequence with these characters. So the sidewalk, the road, the wall are one continuous space, but the same two characters are on the left and then on the right as they move through the space there. So we start to see some really strange things that happen on a page between time and space where because we have two things going on always on the page, it's always simultaneous. Everything is happening all at once, right? Um, and it's also always read in sequence from start to finish. So there's weird things that happen with time and space on these pages because you are reading them both as a sequential thing and as a static thing. Sometimes you weirdly travel back in time, which I'll talk about more in a second. Here's a really interesting one, uh, which uh, also plays weird games with time. A layout for a, a page from uh, an X-Men comic by an artist named John Cassidy, uh, written by Joss Whedon, those who are studying Buffy. Um, here you can see that the whole page is a splash page with the audience and then the folks on the stage here. But then we have these inserted panels, these long horizontals showing the sequence of Kitty Pride coming through the wall. She can walk through walls, right? Um, and then the confrontation between the two characters here. So that takes place first, second, third. So even though this fills the whole page, it even goes above the first panel, it happens third in the sequence and we read from top to bottom. Uh, so we have the, the sequence and then obviously a really carefully designed symmetrical balance to the whole page. Okay, excellent. Now a more uh, action-oriented sequence from John Cassidy here. Um, he's an amazing layout artist uh, and just an amazing draftsman. Uh, I was stunned. I actually own one of these pages from this book. My wife got me for my birthday. She's amazing. Um, and uh, when you look at these, you think he drew these with a pen because, you know, it's really, really fine lines. Every single line in that except the panel borders is done with a tiny little brush or actually not even tiny, just the tip of a, of a brush that's really tiny. It's amazing what he's doing with a brush. Anyway, um, here you can see the sentinels crashing down through the, the roof of the school, right? Uh, you all know this now because you've seen the latest X-Men movie, right? Um, and they're reaching down here. You can see that he's using that uh, diagonal vector here across the page to emphasize the action, make it really, really dramatic. And then this happens first, and then we read the reaction of these characters. Somebody's pressing some kind of a button. They're running down the hall. They're running down the hall trying to get away, right? This is one of those examples of, you know, again, uh, the structure of the, of the static page helping to tell us we're looking at action and dialogue by that dramatic uh, uh, diagonal vector coming through. Even these panels here, though they come as a straight horizontal across, each one of them, the camera's been tilted or there's otherwise some kind of diagonal to help emphasize the, the dr drama and the motion, right? Again, 2D or drawing 101, like diagonals imply motion, right? Um, there's also a crazy funny thing happening with time here. I always ask my students about this. When you look at Cyclops, you can sort of see Cyclops there, right? Um, who is he shooting his, uh, his optical blast at? You don't even question it. You know that he's shooting his optical blast right at the robot, right? Well, you know that because these, this blast is aiming straight at this guy, right? But if you think about that for a second, if that's true, if he's shooting his blast right here at that guy, he's shooting back in time, right? Because this happened first, and then he reacted, and then this happened, right? But the artist has been so clever in the way he's laid this out that he doesn't have to show you much. He just crops these characters and just shows a little bit of the blast, and he puts it in the right place so that it's right along that vector, and you know exactly who Cyclops is aiming at, even though he didn't show the robots in this same panel there. So it's a clever little thing about the weird things that happen with time and space on uh, static pages like this. 
Another awesome action sequence from John Cassidy. You can teach everything you need to know about layout by just looking at John Cassidy. Um, here you can see the importance to the artist. Now this, this page is going to be colored eventually, and the color is going to have a, a, a strong impact on how your eye flows through the page, and so would the word balloons, which eventually would show up in here. But this is the raw inked page, and here you can see the importance of spotting the blacks for how the composition works, right? Strong contrast, black and white, ink on white paper, um, you know, is a traditional thing in comics, and the artist is using it here uh, to, you know, tell you where to look, right? Contrast creates weight. Your eye goes right there. Uh, and also to tell this, the dramatic story, again, using that strong diagonal and, you know, just drawing your eye from black shape to black shape down through the page, telling the story. Another one with some dramatic contrast here. And what I want to point out with this one is how he's using the, uh, scat, the um, staggered relationship of these long vertical panels, as well as the shape of this long, this tall vertical panel to describe the kind of motion that's happening in, inside the action. So Kitty Pride, who can walk through walls or fall through the middle of the earth, is basically zooming straight down to the depths of the earth here. So long vertical panels help to emphasize that vertical motion. She's coming through the earth here. We go he, one, two, three, four, five, and read it in that order. And you can see how he is staggering both the arrangement of the panels. They go higher at the top and then lower down here. So everything is moving from upper right to lower left. Um, and even then the spotting of the blacks in, the, in the, these sets of panels emphasizes that diagonal coming down here. So um, we are moving in the direction of reading and falling straight down, emphasized by the panel design, emphasized by the spotting of the blacks and those uh, implied lines carrying our eye to the picture. Right? Make sense? Okay. Um, some dramatic diagonal panels here uh, influenced by some of the kinds of panels you see in manga. And I've almost entirely left manga out of this. I apologize to those who are Japanese comics fans, but um, I didn't put it in here. Um, a bit of a horrific aspect to the scene, and that diagonal panel sort of disorients us and sort of helps to set the scene. How are we doing? Good. Um, okay. So, um, so all of the stuff I've looked at so far emphasized even if it wasn't, a, if it started with grids, then kind of distorted grids and altered grids to emphasize different aspects of the story. Um, but there are some artists like Will Eisner here, coming back to him, who pioneered the notion of getting rid of the panels. There's kind of virtual panels here. We still know what to read first and next, and we still know we're moving into different spaces. But he's done his best to kind of eliminate the actual drawn panel border and just have a flow of words and images that carry us all the way through the page. It's not a splash page where it's just one single image. It still is a narrative sequence, but it's composed entirely as a single, uh, single image on one level. This has influenced many artists, and here's another page from Habibi by Craig Thompson. Uh, again, that uh, influence of Islamic art on the page design. Some beautiful, beautiful uh, brushwork here. And what carries us through the page is obviously that sequence, that curving vector of the word balloons, right? Also, uh, the characters moving in a similar direction and uh, bringing our eye through the page there. Okay. So some artists have worked to eliminate the grid entirely. And then there's Chris Ware, who loves grids. Man, does he love grids. He's crazy for them. Um, and he's a really interesting artist. If you've never read some of his work, uh, it's really worth doing. 
Um, it, you have to be in a different mindset. This is not Spider-Man punching out bad guys, which sometimes I love to read too. You have to be in a particular mood to read Chris Ware. I remember reading one review of Chris Ware's work where the reviewer said, why does Chris Ware hate fun? That <laughs> was the title of the review. Um, <laughs> you, you, you can't be in the Spider-Man mood when you go to these works because there's something very different happening here. And this insane grid uh, is used for a, a reason, right? Um, Chris Ware's works tend to be semi-autobiographical, set in the real world about real people living real lives. And he's kind of obsessed with the, the tedium and pain and depression that people feel. <laughs> so he kind of does hate fun. Um, and that's reflected in this grid. It takes a long time to read one of these pages, right? right. One moment after another moment after another moment, kind of like uh, a long day. Here, another variation on the grid. This is actually one of those images I showed you first. Uh, this is from uh, a comic called Building Stories, which I think is the most recent Chris Ware work. It's an amazing, amazing uh, comic. It's actually a bunch of different comics that come in a box, and some of them are big fold-outs. So even though these grids are really tiny, it's a huge, like almost newspaper-like fold-out, so you can actually see it really, really clearly and, and read it. Um, and it, it's, it's well worth your time. Um, I know you can't really read at all what's going on there. But this particular page shows something that's common in all of his work, uh, and it's an aspect of his interest in the grid, and that is uh, his interest in architecture and how the structure of buildings and the grid-like structure of buildings, specifically Chicago architecture, he's a Chicago artist, he lives, I think, in Oak Park now, um, has influenced the way he constructs his pages and the kinds of stories he tells. And building stories is obviously about that. It's a series of buildings in and around Chicago and the people that live in them over long spans of time, you know, that, that residents change. Um, so Chris Ware has an interesting project. Yeah, and he goes crazy with, with the grid, yeah. He, it's a very interesting project. It's a very different goal than most of the comic book artists that you've probably read or, or heard of. But again, it's, it's well worth looking at when you're in the right mood. Um, and uh, I'm going to use Chris Ware as I'm going to segue briefly here into my, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but my crazy theory that, you know, I've been trying to convince Troy of for, for months now. And that is that comic books uh, are very unique as a medium. I mean, ob that's obviously true. They're unique as a medium. But they, they're unique in their relationship to how we think, how human beings think. And Chris Ware is an excellent example of that. So looking at this page here, again, you can see that in uh, intense grid. You can see a couple other things about Chris Ware's work. The, the characters are very simplified, abstracted, and stylized. It's a really clean, thin line. Uh, there's not a lot of um, effort spent to uh, render realism on any level in terms of characters' features or whatnot. Um, you know, uh, but... Um, and the colors are, are bright and crisp. There's a lot of strong contrast within them. Um, and the images tend to be small and kind of compressed onto the page. And if we actually go in there and, and look, there's the man himself. Um, these, these, are, these are the same panels from that page. I blew them up bigger so that you could actually kind of get a sense of what you're reading. And I, know I put up one of those pages and you just see this massive grid and it's just overwhelming. But when you're actually reading the thing, and sitting down and holding it up close to you, you can actually appreciate what he's doing in these. And you can see here is that same scene where he's aspect to aspect sort of setting the scene of a rainy day um, and the, the woman looking at her watch. Uh, and then she arrives at her work and goes inside, right? Again, this is not Spider-Man fighting up you know, Dr. Octopus here. 
Um, she puts the keys down. She reads the letter. You can see this little snippet of what she's reading here about what she needs to do that day. She turns on the lights, right? These are some of the flowers. Right? She's, working, she's working at a florist. She sets up the watering, right? Um, so, so there's this, you know, really uh, dense pace to it, right? And he's he basically, he's just making a comic about this gal's daily life of going to work and what she does, right? Um, and so uh, his interest is in realism, right? But you say, okay, well, he's interested in telling stories about real life, but he's far away from what we would call realistic art. The art is extremely simplified and stylized. You know, it's fragmented and broken up into a page instead of being a continuous movie like real life is. So, well, it may have a realistic subject matter. It is not a realistic style. And I would contend that, uh, this is my contention, that the actual structure of the comic page, including all of those things that at first glance seem unlike reality, actually make these comics, and especially Chris Ware's, but any comics, more like the way we actually experience reality from the inside than either film or literature. So again, appreciating that whole page there and how we look at it. So you might say, okay, well, that's kind of crazy, right? Um, the real world, when I look at it, is photorealistic, right? And this stuff is all highly simplified. How is that possibly more like the way we think than uh, where we experience the world and perceive it than, you know, photorealistic stuff? Um, so Steven Pinker here, um, a psychologist at Harvard, very well-known thinker um, and linguist. Uh, one of his early books, The Stuff of Thought, here, he coined this term thought ease. He says, we think that we, we, we believe that we think in words, right? That when we're conceiving of a thought, we think the words come to our mind, in, in my case, in English, and we think these thoughts in words, and then we speak them in words to other people. And he, the expert in language, says, no, not the case. We do not think in words. We think in a native language of thought called, he called it thought ease. And then when we go to speak, or even just think about speaking, we automatically translate the, the, the abstract thought ease into language. And then we say that. To we write it or we talk and we you know, express that to somebody. Um, so it happens so quickly that we think we're thinking in language, but we're actually not. We're thinking in some kind of simplified abstract series of neural patterns, right? It's not literally thinking about uh, the shape of an apple. That's even getting a little bit closer to, to visualize. But I use that simplified schematic counter-drawing to say the way we think about apple, for example, is not either the word apple or a photorealistic apple, but a simplified abstract relationship that happens in our brains. And uh, in many ways, that kind of simplification, right, the way that our brains take complicated things and restore them as simple abstract uh, memories, simple abstract concepts in our brains, uh, is similar. It's related to what artists are doing when they use cartooning, right? Now, cartooning is only one kind of style, but it's pretty common in comic books. And it's there not just because it's faster to do, although that is actually honestly kind of important <laughs> to be able to have enough time to, to draw these things. You sometimes have to simplify them. But the simplification in a cartoony style is not only there to speed up the artist's job. It's also there to amplify certain things, right? Uh, Scott McCloud calls this amplification through simplification, right? Because in essence, Scott McCloud doesn't use these terms. I'm using them because in essence what he's saying, the simple, is closer, the simple image is closer to thought ease than the photorealistic image. We see 
the photorealistic apple and we translate it into our concept of apple, right? And then that may be networked to the word apple and other things we associate with apple. So our experience of the world is different than just a photorealistic movie that we see in front of our eyes. Um, so comic book artists use this idea of simplification in different kinds of ways. Um, and here you can see Scott McCloud on the left. This is the narrator of his book, Understanding Comics. And here's his photorealistic drawing of himself, sort of semi-photorealistic, right? Um, and he intentionally chose the image on the left as the narrator uh, because he felt that it would be much easier for people to, un to um, listen to the information and get it from that guy on the left than from the guy on the right. Uh, on the far right panel here, this is a page from one of Craig Thompson's books called Blankets. Um, the hero of the story is this guy on the left whose face is literally a line, a couple of lines and dashes. And then the character he's interacting with has a much more naturalistic face. It's still cartoony, but nowhere near as simplified as the guy on the left, who is the main character and the one that we identify with. So this is kind of the crux of Scott McClard's argument here, and, th and that is that the more simple the character design, and the more simple, especially the face, but really the whole character design, then the less we see that character as an outside person we're interacting with, and the more we see that character as a person who we inhabit. We step into their shoes, and we, uh, we experience the world of that character through their eyes. So he calls this the masking effect, this incredibly simplified character face, and then this almost photorealistic background. We step into it, and we enter the world from this character's point of view. Um, so, in essence, that character becomes our mask. And um, he, he explains this in a really interesting way. When we um, experience the world, right, we see lots of, uh, of photorealistic faces in front of our eyes all the time, all these different people we know and recognize. Um, but we know, unless we look in a mirror, our own faces are abstract, right? We only have our sense of proprioception of where our eyes, nose, and mouth are in space. So our own faces feel to us our mental picture of our own faces looks more like this than it does like a photorealistic face. We'll come back to that in a second. Now, not all artists use the masking effect. Some artists use very different styles. There are even photo comics that use literally photographs of very naturalistic people. And uh, McLeod goes into great detail here analyzing how this works. He's created this amazing chart, which is the thing that all, all visual artists, you know, point out when they, when they pull out his book, right? This is the, the thing we all look at first, um, where he's got three poles, right? And on the left-hand side here is the most uh, realistic optical reality uh, style we could have, right? Even shooting a photograph. Um, over here on the right-hand side, we have the simplified image, the extreme cartoony clarity of meaning, even including words over here. We'll see more clearly in a second. And then up at the top, we have the picture plane, an emphasis on pure design for its own sake, and the meaning or the resemblance to reality is out the window. It's just about uh, abstract aesthetic considerations of design, right? And what he's done on this chart here is he's taken a whole bunch of artists that he likes and kind of redrawn all the heads of the characters and he's graphed it where they sit between those three poles, right? Um, I, I won't, you know, it's really interesting to look at if you can actually see it up close, but <coughs> this is the level of complexity <coughs> that he goes into in this book. It's, it's well, well worth it to, to check out his book. Okay, 
So artists are choosing lots and lots of different styles. <coughs> and <coughs> um, do I have any water? Could you get me some water? Sorry, I've run out of juice here. Um, lots and lots of different styles. Although what, one thing that you'll notice is that uh, most of the styles on this page are getting crammed toward this side, right? And again, there's a reason for that, right? Clarity of meaning is a really important consideration if you're trying to tell a story and you have your reader understand what's going on. And also there's this aspect of the masking effect of giving the, the reader a chance to step into the eyes of the character and have the reality feel more like it feels like from the inside than an objective view of reality, right? So again, this argument I'm coming back to where uh, comics are on this level, this fundamental level, more realistic to our experience of the world than, say, uh, films are. So um, here again in the Chris Ware, you can see another page where this kind of stuff is happening. You can appreciate a little bit more clearly his style, the really simplified, clear line of it. Um, kind of a fractured grid here, kind of a staccato fractured grid. This is another page that really clarifies this idea of the masking effect. Thank you so much. The masking effect, the character we follow, the one we are identifying with, the protagonist, so much as it is in this world of depression, in Chris Ware's uh, unfun world, the guy that we're following is the fellow in red, right? His face is literally two dots and a couple dashes, right? And he's using that red sweater as a, a way to create contrast and visual weight so that we e immediately follow him through the whole page also here. And notice that the person that he's interacting with is much more naturalistically drawn. She's still cartoonified, but she has natural proportions, a much more natural shape of eyes, nose, and mouth, a lot more specific detail. This is a human being that is of interest and import to the protagonist, who we are stepping into his shoes, right? So he's using the masking effect here, and he's using a range of styles within his own comic to impact the way we step into the story, the way we read the story, the way we relate to the characters are in there, that are in there, right? So you look at a page like this, and it's this very abstract design, very simplified characters, and again, you, you think of what Eric's telling you, you know, that this is closer to the way you experience reality uh, than other media, and you say, no, 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 you know, films are way closer to reality because films are photorealistic, unless, of course, they're animation. Um, and that's how we see the world. We see motion. We see movement. We see the, the world as we go about our days as a continuous movie, right? Um, and I would say to you, well, not entirely, right? We don't just sort of stay with our eyes on one thing and see it as a continuous movie. We turn our heads all the time. We see staccato, fragmented images. Um, and more importantly, too, the things we perceive in the world as we go about our daily lives are only a little bit coming from our external senses. As soon as we see, smell, hear, or touch something, that sets off instantly this cascade of associations inside our complex human brains of thought ease, of simplified schematic images, memories, uh, associations, right? And so our experience of the daily world, the comic book we see, is mostly happening inside our heads. Indeed, it's closure, right? It's the same way that that happens in comic books. We see a few fragmented staccato things in the world. That sets off a whole lot of other, the, the majority of what we perceive during the course of the day is happening inside our heads, all in thought ease. And so I would contend that the world we see is more like this, that our experience of reality is at least it is very much subjective. It's not just the objective, photorealistic view of the world. And so 
um, this is more like reality. And you'd say, no, 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 no. The literary teachers out there are saying, words, literary, we think in words, and when we read words on a page, we are directly accessing the mind and the thoughts of the person who wrote it, as well as getting inside the heads of the characters. Literature is the best at getting inside the heads of the characters uh, because we can actually read all this complex thought that's going on inside the heads. And I don't mean to deny that that is true, but I would point out that um, when we read words, if we believe the expert in language, Stephen Pinker, we have to translate those words into thought ease before we understand them and experience in them and that I'm arguing here, thought ease is a lot closer to the comic, right? We see the, the, the objective apple, the information goes into our eyes, and we instantly get all of these associations, all of this thought ease going on inside our heads that creates a comic book, right? Um, and so the, the image in front of our eyes is only one of the panels, and the rest of the panels and the, the process of closure is happening inside our minds. And so um, if we look at the three media film, literature and comics, my uh, outrageous hypothesis that I want all of you to try to disprove is that uh, comics are the most like telepathy. Uh, all creative artists are trying to uh, take information that's in their brains and directly transfer that experience and that, those concepts, those ideas, those emotions uh, to the person that's experiencing their art. And what Chris Ware is doing in his comics although I still think the same thing is happening in Ultimate Spider-Man, is we are uh, giving the reader an experience that on some level is actually closer to the way we experience reality than uh, either film or literature. Take it for what it's worth. Um, It is about 12 now. I have some slides of my own work at this point. Um, I could go through them quick, and then we probably still have some time for questions. Okay. All right, so um, 1998 on the left and 2011 on the right. You can guess what happened to me in 1998, right? Same thing that happened to Star Wars. Waited in line for Star Wars. Nothing has changed much in that time. Um, I started skipping a whole lot of time here. Uh, This is a series of paintings. I'm going to go through them quick. In about 2002, I started making this sequence of paintings related to some of my earlier work. These are big oil paintings on canvas um, that have this kind of weird science fiction-y, crazy post-apocalyptic future thing going on. But the important thing here is that for the first time ever, I wanted to tell, I I always had a narrative component in my work, but here, for the first time, I decided to tell a specific story in sequence. In essence, a comic made up of 13 paintings, right? It took me two years to do it. (laughs) And as I was working on it, I was showing it to some of my students, um, and uh, they said, oh, you're making a comic. And I said, ha, ha, no, I'm not. I'm making paintings. I don't read comics. Not since I was 12. And they started bringing into me, uh, literally, uh, giant bags full of comic books and graphic novels, and it ru- ruined me from that point forth. I haven't done anything but. Um, but uh, so uh, that was going on as I was developing this story. So. Uh, there's the eco-farmer people and the genetic engineer people and something is eating the crops of the eco-farmer people and they look down and what they're looking... Oh, there's Pam. There she is. <laughs> In pain. Um, and this is what they see. So a subject-to-subject transition, right? So they're not only eating the crops, something is eating the people. Skip to another scene across town. He's feeding the bug. Uh-oh. And then uh, 
he, uh, they're designing the bugs. Not only are they feeding the bugs, they're designing the bugs, and the bugs are building their uh, dwelling places, etc. So these people, all, their entire world is genetically engineered, them, including themselves and their, their homes and everything else. So they get some revenge. Now, notice here, too, that the titles of these paintings became dialogue at a certain point because I could layer more information in that way. So I didn't literally put word balloons in there, but the titles functioned as kind of word balloons. So the eco-farmer people attack the genetic engineer people. And the important thing here is if you read the dialogue before, you realize that these genetic engineers didn't intend what happened to happen. It was a mistake. So this attack on them is actually quite an exaggeration. They didn't intend to attack them. Then they do worse than attack them. They hang them from the poles. And this is, weirdly enough, the first painting I sold from the group. And I think it was because of the bikini. This is my favorite painting from the whole group. The genetic engineer people uh, start injecting something into the pigeons. Pigeons fly in. Everyone dies. I'm going to go through this fast. And then they surrender. And everybody's happy on the left. Everybody's a little bit stressed out on the right. And if you look here, oh, there's Tyler. Hey, Tyler. Here's your friend. <laughs> um, this guy's holding a gun. He's hiding it there. Um, and then the end of it was this. He attacks. So everything starts over. The cycle of violence starts over again. Um, I started painting these in 2002, so the year after 9-11 happened. And uh, it was very much a response to that ethnic conflict and the cycles of violence, etc. And when I put these up on the wall of the gallery, people read them in sequence. They walked around the gallery and read the whole gallery as a comic book. And they got to the end. And any, if you ask any artist, they'll tell you what they want from their viewers is a reaction. You know, the worst thing for any artist is somebody gets to the end and they go, meh. You know, you want them either to go, whoa, or you want them to go, I hate this. Either one of those is a great reaction. When I got to the end, I was standing there. Most people didn't know me. When I got to the end, I noticed there were always two reactions as people got to the end. They either got to the end, to the sequence, and they said, oh. Or when they got to the end, they went, yeah. Get them. I'll leave it to you to decide which you prefer. Um, okay, so once I finished that and I finally got it up on the wall, I was like, all right, comics now. So I started writing scripts. This isn't the first script I wrote. It's a long story, but this is a script. So it reads just like a movie script. Uh, I'm describing what's going on in the panels, what's going on in the dialogue. I, I don't write it nearly so formally today. Then here's a study page. So this is a really quick sketch in my sketchbook laying out from the script what you're seeing on the page. And this is a splash page and a title page, so it's just one image. Then I scan it into Photoshop. I use Photoshop to make some clean perspective lines. I size it up. I move the word balloons around to get them exactly where I want them. Then I trace that. I shoot pictures of myself and my wife exclusively for all the male and female characters. And <laughs> uh, get some reference shots. And then there's the finished page, including the, the, the logo I designed in Illustrator, actually. Um, and what you can see there, right? So obviously things have been altered and changed. The photo reference is kind of helpful, though, to speed things up. And then here uh, is a, are a couple of images, and then I'll be done, um, where it's uh, a little bit of the evolution of the style of this comic. This is the comic I've been working on for many years now, um, and uh, I've only completed the, completed the first issue, but uh, we're still working on the other ones. Um, anyway, uh, this is the layout page. And then here's the first version of it finished, right? And you can see it follows the layout pretty, pretty carefully, right? 
Um, it's drawn much bigger in ink, right? But by the time I got to the end of the comic and I went back, I didn't like it, so I redrew the first page. And this looks more like the end of the comic than the first page did. You can see how radically it changed, oops, right, between here and there. There's a lot more lines, too. It got a lot denser with the hatching. And there's a lot more photo reference brought into it. This happens to look more like my wife than the character I designed. So I was like, you know what, that, that doesn't work. I need to... I need to change this, and it ended up being redrawing the entire comic, but it started with this first page. So here's the penciled version of the page, and you can see the redesigned character, and then I re-inked it, and it still has all those dense, dense little hash marks. Um, I zoomed in on the car, I redesigned the character, and so I drew it one more time, appropriate to be shrunk down, and I simplified it and took out all the lines, and then this is the final version of the page, right? So you can see I sort of hovered back and forth between more cartoony and more photorealistic until I found the style that worked for me, that, w that expressed what I was going for in the story best. Um, and then I also had to figure out the best kind of ink line and, and hatching to, to fit the, the size of the page. And then I colored it. Um, I still haven't colored most of the thing, but this is uh, all colored in Photoshop. Uh, so that's page one of the hack, chapter one. Um, and... Uh, Eventually, it'll be up online. Actually, I think page one is up online, but it, that's all. Like, <laughs> the rest of it isn't up there yet. I'm still actually still writing issue 10 right now, so uh, I haven't gotten to drawing issue two yet. So anyway, that's uh, what I've been doing. Uh, those are my thoughts on how comics work. Tip of the iceberg. Again, my drawing two people, you're going to get a chance to make something like a comic or, or a comic uh, when we get to the end of class. And I, I'm happy to answer any questions. We still have a few minutes remaining. If you have questions, I have a microphone. Sorry. You said that words are transcribed into thoughties. When a person uh, has information in their head, mm -hmm. it's a thoughtie, so it's not really words yet, right? Yeah, that's what Steven Pinker says. Yeah, that, that any, anything, the, the way in which we think and string thoughts together is taking place inside our head in a native language and that it's externalized and translated into words, uh, both in our heads and then also with our mouths. What language. about when you're having a mental conversation with yourself? You're doing that translation inside your own head. So in other words, you're communicating through thought through thoughtanese? Yeah, you're thinking a sequence of thoughts in thoughtese and then in your head without speaking it aloud, you're translating it into words. And you're just doing it so fast and so intuitively that you don't realize you're doing it. Now, I'm not saying that this, this isn't my theory. This is Stephen Pinker's theory. So whether it's true or not, I'm sure is actually an ongoing debate amongst psychologists. So but he's pretty well-known and influential. So then... Thoughtanese isn't exactly a universal language for it, each person. It's it's more universal than any spoken human language. Yeah, and that, so he's he's a structuralist in that sense, if you know that debate. He's saying that there are inherent linguistic structures that are genetically inherited by all people, and that thought thoughtese is similar between all all people. Yeah. Right, but the way I structure my thoughts may be different from the way in, you structure. In, your indeed, thoughts. indeed. I wouldn't. I don't think he would deny that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Read his books for sure. Don't just take my word for it. I'm a comic book artist. What do I know?
Other questions? Any other questions? Kyle. When's your comic going to be done? <laughs> you know, man, every day I get that question. I have no idea. No idea. Fortunately, you know, I w you know, if you guys didn't take all my time, I'd have more time to... <laughs> um, I do have issue one finished, and I, do, I did intend to put the whole black and white thing up online, so maybe if you bug me enough, I, I can put that out there pretty soon. For free, I'm going to put it out. The rest of it, all ten issues of this comic, it's going to be some years. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, one more. Here you Sir. go. You said that you wouldn't touch on digital comics, but would you? Uh, how do you feel like, can we still get this uh, physical represent representation of experience with comics better on digital or print? Um, I wouldn't say better. I would say different and a lot of exciting possibilities. Um, have you read any of the uh, iPad or... or um, Comicology streaming, you know, comics where uh, basically, uh, in, in, I don't have one, I could show you on my iPad, but you'd never see it. Basically, what you could do on those is, you know, you could tap on it and the first panel would show up, and then you tap it again, and the words show up, and then you tap it again, and this shows up, and you might have the car here, and then the car in the next tap, the car is there. So it, it animates it a little bit more. You can get a different kind of sequence, right? Um, and it's, in one level, it's a little bit more like film or animation. Uh, but it's still being direct, the pace is still directed by the reader and how off frequently they tap. And I think it's really exciting. I would love to, to make one like that. Um, and there's other kinds of ways to organize digital comics, too. That's not by any stretch the only one. Scott McCloud has written an entire book on it and done all kinds of experiments with ways to use the, he calls it the infinite canvas of the screen because you can just keep moving all over the place. And you don't have to always go in a straight line. You don't have to have pages that are like that, you know. So um, there's all kinds of exciting possibilities with digital comics, and I'm a big fan of, you know, the good ones. And, uh, yeah, I, I've got no problems with it. Um, most digital comics you see these days are just pictures of pages, so they're not really taking advantage of the native possibilities of the infinite canvas. Um, but, uh, but the ones that do are really exciting. And if you haven't checked out the Comicsology app and those kind of uh, guided view, I think they call it, um, comics. They're, they're pretty exciting to look at. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone, for coming. How about a round of applause for Eric? Thank you, Thank you guys. And thank you for coming. Our next lecture is at 1230, if you want to stick around. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.